From the outside looking in, the Jamesons would have seemed to be a perfectly normal, happy family. Recently married, they had had a child and now six years later were planning on buying a plot of land in a more remote location where they could build a house and get away from it all. This description would be truly selective, however, as scratched the surface and the Jamesons were a family suffering from all manner of problems. The mother, Sherilyn, struggled with bipolar disorder. Her husband, Bobby, had had an unfortunate car accident which left him in chronic pain daily and Madison, their six-year-old daughter, would apparently speak with spirits which, according to both parents, lived on the property. In 2009, the family disappeared whilst visiting a plot of land they were planning on purchasing in Red Oak, Oklahoma. Their truck left abandoned, they had walked off into the woods leaving few clues as to how or why. Their bodies were not to be found for another four years. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4. I'm Ben, this is Dark Histories, and I hope it finds you all very well. We're going to be doing quite a well-trodden one this week. Uh, sort of mystery that's it's been done a bit, but, you know, I like to put my own spin on things, so hopefully, or rather not my own spin, because that makes it sound like I'm making it up. But, you know, give it the Dark Histories treatment. So, you know, it's definitely fascinating anyway, so... Let's crack on. This is The Mysterious Deaths of the Jameson Family. Sherilyn and Bobby Jameson met in 2002 and immediately hit it off. They had a relatively short relationship before Sherilyn gave birth to Madison in August 2003. What should have been a period of celebration and joy for the new family turned somewhat sour when in November Bobby was involved in a traffic accident that saw two other vehicles slamming into his own. Bobby survived the accident but suffered injuries that would leave him with severe back pain plaguing him for the years to come. There were days where he would find it difficult to get out of bed and this had the knock-on effect of making it increasingly difficult for him to work. Eventually, his only source of income was from the state in the form of welfare benefits. Regardless, the family kept their head up and 11 months later, in July 2004, Bobby and Sherilyn were married in Hot Springs, Arizona. They lived in a large lakefront home in Eufaula, Oklahoma, which was surrounded by a large garden. Life should have settled down for the Jamesons, but over the following years, a series of difficult events and circumstances led them down a turbulent path. In 2007, Sherilyn's sister passed away due to an unfortunate reaction to a bee sting, and in 2008, Bobby's parents, Bobby Sr. and Star Jameson, divorced, leading to a severe dispute between Bobby and his father. The fallout was not gentle, and after several arguments, physical confrontations, an attempt by Bobby Sr. to run over Bobby Jr., and numerous continued threats, court cases were filed by several family members to gain protective orders from Bobby's father. In a statement put forth during the case, Bobby wrote, My entire family is scared for their lives. I am in fear at all times. Throughout the court procedures, Bobby also claimed that his father was deeply involved in prostitution, meth 
and the Mexican Mafia, though there is no real evidence supporting any of this. After a bit of back and forth and a court process, a protective order was initially issued. However, for one reason or another, it was later dismissed after a hearing. During his parents' divorce, Bobby Sr. had also taken it upon himself to write his son out of his will entirely, leaving his estate instead to Bobby Jr.'s daughter, Madison. This led to a further dispute in regards to a gas station that was owned by Bobby Sr. A previous deal had seen Bobby Jr. owed half of the station, but his share was never received. This saw Bobby Jr. filing another legal suit this time against his father to receive the money he was owed from the deal. This suit was successful and the profits of $64,000 were split equally between the pair. 2009 was another particularly trying year for the family. Their daughter Madison was hit in the face by a swing at school that knocked out her two front teeth. Bobby and Sherilyn reacted, perhaps extremely, by removing Madison from school entirely and instead they prepared to homeschool her, whilst they also filed a lawsuit against the school. By this time, one might assume that the Jamesons were quite comfortable with the court process. In July, a handyman and family friend named Kenneth Bellows had moved into their home to help out with home maintenance, as Bobby was still suffering from chronic back pain after his accident that now left him taking pain medication on a daily basis. Just months after, however, in August 2009, upon finding out that Sherilyn had Native American heritage, Bellow's white supremacist leanings were uncovered. Arguments between the two broke out that resulted in Sherilyn firing a .22 caliber pistol into the ground by his feet. Naturally, their relationship broke down permanently. Also in July of 2009, Sherilyn's ex-husband from her first marriage took custody of their son, Colton, and in September, Sherilyn was hospitalised following a failed suicide attempt. Her condition was apparently destabilising very rapidly, with friends commenting on her weight loss and general emaciated appearance. During the custody hearing, which passed without incident, Colton, being over the age of 12, had a large say in who he would prefer to live with, and he gave a statement about his mother, claiming that she had seemed very depressed and that she often acted strangely. This was all no doubt a culmination of the roller coaster of previous events, combined with Sherilyn's documented trouble with bipolar and severe depression. However, Even outside of this, it is also true that both her and her husband Bobby had been acting very strangely indeed. The Jamesons were a fairly religious family and Bobby had reportedly visited his pastor Gary Brandon to inquire on whether it was possible to buy bullets which could be used in spiritual warfare. This strange request was explained by Bobby when he admitted that he needed to fight spirits that he routinely saw on the roof of their house, one of which bore wings. This was a notion backed up by Sherilyn, who claimed that there were three to four spirits in their home, making up a family who were apparently named Michael and Emily, and their daughter who spoke to Madison. The pair obviously found the spirits to be an unsettling presence in the household, and Bobby had even gone so far as to have bought a satanic bible 
that he misguidedly planned to use to exorcise the spirits. Reports have varied on whether or not they thought the spirits themselves to be malicious, but Sherilyn began leaving small notes around the house with scribblings on such as Get Out Satan. Sherilyn had also begun to bandy the idea around that she was practicing witchcraft, though her close friend said she never took it seriously and it was rather a tongue-in-cheek exercise which she used to keep people she didn't want in her life at arm's length. If this is true, however, she took this to fairly extreme lengths as she spray-painted religious slogans and confusing phrases on various items in their yard, including a beaten-up old car and a large storage container with musings such as Only God, Gossip is Sin, and the most out there, Three Cats Killed to Date by People in This Area, Witches Don't Like Their Black Cats Killed. The reference to cats was apparently concerning the death of the family's cats, which she believes to have been poisoned by someone in the neighbourhood. The pair had apparently slipped into a state of some paranoia, and through all of this, Bobby and Sherilyn's marriage invariably suffered. By how much and for which reason is not known exactly. It could have been a combination of everything or one particular aspect, but the couple were noticeably struggling. Later on, after the discovery of Sherilyn's journal, police would find entries that clearly showed Sherilyn as unhappy with her marital situation, and close friends of the couple mentioned that they had been having a hard time for many years. However, contrary to this, relatives later made statements that despite all of their arguments, the couple were very much in love. Either way, the marriage was certainly not idyllic. It was in this difficult marital climate that the family packed their truck to leave Eufaula and visit a 40-acre plot of land that they planned to buy in Red Oak, a somewhat mountainous and wooded area set in the wilderness 30 miles south of the family home. After the years of earlier chaos, it appeared as though the Jamesons were seeking a quieter life, off the grid and away from the trappings of the past. They planned to purchase the land and move into a storage container that Sherilyn had previously graffitied whilst they could convert it into a new home, maintaining the Eufaula home as a rental. On October the 7th of 2009, they visited the area for the first time. Witnesses told of how the family seemed to be in good spirits, and the following day they once again set out to the remote area. This time, however, they would not return. On October the 8th, 2009, the couple packed their large pickup truck and along with their daughter and Maisie, the family dog, headed towards Red Oak to again visit and inquire about the land they were looking to purchase. In CCTV footage filmed from a security camera purchased during the dispute with Bobby's father, the Jamesons are shown, busily and wordlessly walking to and fro from the house loading boxes of their possessions into the truck. Soon they were back on the road to Red Oak. After the 30 mile drive to the base of the Santa Bowie Mountains where the land was located, Bobby and Sherilyn visited an associate of the landowner and when the meeting was done, through later piecing together of evidence like pieces of a puzzle, we know that the family parked up and went for a short walk for around 15 minutes. 
They made sure to take their GPS unit and found a quiet spot on a hillside. After they returned to their vehicle, they drove a little further and then, with the truck left locked in the middle of the dirt track, they were simply gone. During their initial absence, none of their friends and family felt any cause for concern. Bobby and Sherilyn were known to fall off the radar from time to time and Madison had already been pulled out of school. So it was that the Jameson family quietly disappeared, never to be seen alive again. On Saturday, October the 17th, 2009, hunters on dirt bikes ran across the Jameson's abandoned truck and called police to report the vehicle. Initially, the police assumed the vehicle to have been stolen as the report suggested the truck to have only been on the roadside for a few hours. Though later that day, the same hunter called back to confirm to police that he had seen it there, abandoned for a number of days. The Latimer County Sheriff, Israel Beauchamp, Undersheriff Matt Bond and several other officers headed out to the truck, which they found locked and parked across the dirt track. When they discovered that Jameson's dog Maisie was alive and inside the vehicle, they smashed the window, releasing her and found that by now she had almost starved to death. As they began taking inventory, they found that the Jamesons had left behind all of their coats and warm clothing. Bobby had left his wallet and Sherilyn her purse. They had also left behind their phone and their GPS unit, which one might assume to be of critical importance when spending time in an unfamiliar wilderness area. Curiously, they also found, among several piles of garbage that was littered throughout the truck, an 11-page document written by Sherilyn that amounted to a hate letter expressing all of her grievances and hatred for Bobby and in a brown bank bag, stuffed below the passenger seat, $32,000 in cash. During their initial investigations, no sign of a struggle were found. There was no blood, no broken glass, and no signs of scuffle on the soft ground around the truck. A search was organised, and over the coming days and weeks would eventually consist of over 400 volunteers, horses, mules, ATVs, 16 teams of cadaver dogs and an unmanned drone, though volunteers were asked not to attend at first due to the remote location. We don't want a search party for three missing people to turn into a search for others, said Sergeant Chuck Wells in a press conference. During the searches, the cadaver dog teams repeatedly found suspicion with the nearby water tower. It was promptly drained, though no evidence concerning the Jamesons could be found. Meanwhile, McIntosh County Sheriff Joe Hogan had had his deputies search the Jameson's family home in Eufaula, where they discovered several key facts. Their first important discovery was that of the security footage of the Jamesons packing the vehicle, which allowed them to cross-check the inventory of the truck. Upon doing so, they found that a large brown briefcase or satchel had been loaded into the truck, but now could not be found anywhere back in Red Oak or inside the truck. They also took note of a missing 22 caliber pistol belonging to Sherilyn that could not be found in their home and was confirmed by friends and family to be carried in the truck. However, it also could not be found in Red Oak. 
When police checked the phone records of the mobile phone found in the truck, they found that curiously it had made an outgoing call to voicemail on the 12th, though it would have been locked inside the abandoned truck at the time. They also found a photo of Madison taken upon the hill and through a combination of following the GPS unit and using the photo as reference, found it to be just 200 yards away from the abandoned truck. The case was becoming increasingly webbed and Beauchamp told reporters in a press conference that a lot of investigators would love to have as many leads as we do. The problem is, they point in so many different directions. Eventually, with the hunting season on the horizon and searches becoming less fruitful and more dangerous by the day, the search for the Jamiesons were abandoned and information on the case fell silent. Until one day in November, over four years later, a grim discovery would reignite the search for the eventual fate of the family who appeared to have parked up their truck and walked off the face of the planet. In November 6, 2013, four years after their disappearances, three bodies, two adults and a young child were found lying face down in a line by a deer hunter in the smokestack hollow area of Panola Mountain. 2.7 miles from where the Jameson truck was found. The area was miles from any paved roads and extremely remote. The three bodies were severely decomposed and the remains consisted of three skulls, an undocumented number of bones and bone fragments, the victim's shoes and some scraps of clothing. It took over eight months for the police to formally confirm what most people had by that point long assumed that the bodies were those of the Jameson family. When questioned why the initial searchers had found nothing, despite their scale, Assistant Special Agent of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation told reporters, somewhat dismissively, that falling leaves potentially obscured the bodies. Due to the extensive decomposition that had occurred in the four years since their disappearance, it was deemed impossible to determine a cause of death though one of the skulls, that of Bobby, had a small hole which was initially suspected as being a bullet wound. Later the police dropped this line of inquiry, but the hunters who found the bodies disagreed. Initially, Sheriff Beauchamp had thought that foul play was involved, but four years had passed and Beauchamp had since left the service. The incoming sheriff, Jesse James, told press when asked about the line of inquiry the case was following, simply stated, It's a very strange deal, you know, the way this case has unfolded. We're looking at a lot of things, a lot of things have crossed my mind. And so it remains today. After enlisting the help of 12 FBI agents, 3 OSBI agents, Oklahoma Highway Patrol's Troop Z, PIs and eventually even psychics, the case is now utterly cold. Facts are laid out but nothing leads to anything concrete. Later, after leaving the police force, Beauchamp spoke in a documentary on the case stating that normally you can go through an investigation and one by one you can start to eliminate certain scenarios. We haven't been able to do that in this case. With this family, everything seems possible. The theories that do surround the Madison family case range from sound to utterly bizarre. The cold nature of the case has allowed speculation to run wild, and while some lean heavily on the facts, 
there are other theories which are less inclined. The following theories are not exhaustive, but instead a general overview of some of the most enduring. One theory, heavily disputed by relatives of Bobby and Sherilyn, is that of murder-suicide. On the surface, this theory mainly gains traction by concerning itself with both the mental state of Sherilyn and the chronic back pain of Bobby, leading both to have a somewhat plausible motive. Several of Sherilyn's friends commented on her deteriorating mental health, and she would sporadically take herself off of her prescription meds. Her manic episodes were also known to be spiteful and often angry, and with the events leading up to their disappearance, she was in a very low and dark space. In the case of Bobby, he was known to struggle with back pain. He walked with a slouch and his being unable to work had left him depressed. Low morale and severe pain on a daily basis are difficult things to live with for anyone, and Bobby had shown signs of unusual behaviour, specifically asking his pastor about spiritual warfare. Both Bobby and Sherilyn were known to have been on a large amount of prescription medication at the time of their disappearance for depression. Then, of course, there is the long 11-page letter which detailed how much Sherilyn disliked her husband. It is theorised that either the letter is a form of suicide note, or possibly a motive for Bobby. Did Sherilyn write it as an explanation for her actions, or did Bobby find it and snap? However, Sherilyn's friend Nikki spoke of the letter, explaining it away as Sherilyn's form of therapy. She would write things down when they came into her mind, but then she would move on. She loved Bobby, she said. Murder-suicide would, however, seemingly explain why the gun was not left in the truck. However, it does beg the question, where is the gun now? And what of the brown briefcase that had too apparently vanished? The family's relatives maintain that the move to the wilderness was the family trying to turn a corner and put the past behind them, that they were very much in love and firmly disagree with any theory involving suicide or murder-suicide. The theory that the Jameson family was murdered is one of the more convincing but heavily speculated theories, and it ranges from disgruntled locals after the outsiders, B-movie style, to Mexican drug cartels and beyond. Bobby's father was a suspect for a very short period. Despite their ongoing disputes and the alleged threats towards the family, Bobby Sr. was 67 years old, and at the time of the family's disappearance was living in a care home. In fact, two months on from their disappearance, he himself passed away. These facts generally knock him firmly from the list of suspects. But what of Kenneth, the family friend who turned out to be a white supremacist? He too was briefly a suspect in the case, but as it happened, was found to be in jail at the time of their disappearance, and so he too can be struck off the list. Sherilyn's mother, Connie Cockatan, herself believes murder to be the most likely scenario in the deaths of the family. There's no way they just wandered off and got lost, she said. What I truly believe is that they went up there, saw something they shouldn't and were murdered by someone. Who that was, I just don't know. The way their truck was left, it looks like it had been forced to stop by someone. Everyone around here knows there are lots of evil people up in those mountains. It's where outlaws like Jesse James used to hide out. It's so isolated. I'm scared to go up there. 
If murder truly was the fate of the Jamesons, it might explain the missing briefcase and gun, but it asks one rather large question which simply has no answer. What would have been the motive for killing a family in the middle of nowhere who were simply out looking to buy a plot of land? There has been much speculation on the Jamesons being addicted to or involved in meth. Meth is known to have been a problem in the area of Oklahoma that they lived in and has led some to speculate that this had deeply affected the Jamesons and their fate either directly or indirectly. First is the theory that the Jamesons were involved in taking meth themselves. The couple's emaciated appearance in the security video, alongside their actions during packing, of stopping and staring into the distance, or generally acting spaced out are the main drivers. Some even speculate that the brown briefcase was a drug case they used to store their drugs and paraphernalia away from Madison. The sheriff himself stated about the security video, On the video, they would just stop and stare. It was strange. If they were users, the theory goes, then perhaps they are in a dark place indeed, and this possibly led to murder-suicide, or happening upon a local who caught them abusing in the woods. As far-fetched as these sound, there is one other theory concerning drugs that suggests that whilst not users themselves, the Jamesons were attempting to arrange a one-time meth deal to alleviate their financial difficulties and the deal had turned sour. Again, the brown briefcase comes to play, with most exponents of this theory suggesting that it was either full of drugs to be sold or money to exchange. This theory does, however, ignore that the Jamesons did in fact have several timeshares across New Mexico and the US, as well as the $32,000 in cash that was found in the truck. The money in the truck is more than likely a share of the $64,000 recently split between Bobby and his father, and further, when the house and truck was searched, no evidence of drugs were found in either. Connie Cockertan stated when asked if they had been known to take drugs that they were not taking meth, there is no way. How could they have looked after little Madison if they were? They were good parents and they would not have been capable of that if they were on meth. One of the more out there theories involves a cult going by the name of the United White Knights. Sherilyn's friend, Nikki, had launched a campaign to try to find out more information concerning the fate of the Jamesons when she was contacted by an anonymous woman who told her that she had been involved in the group and that Sherilyn and Bobby had been names on a hit list that they maintained. Whilst Nikki herself holds little stock in the claim, she did hold reservations stating that I went up to those mountains about a year later and near where the bodies were found there was a line of cars parked with Texas license plates. When we got near the actual spot there were a couple of gunshots. They sounded like warning shots to me. I don't scare easily but that place really freaks me out. There is something not right about it. Who, what or why however is rarely approached in such theories and there is little stock outside of the fact that in the remote location of the foot of the mountains, cults could operate in secret. It does all seem rather far-fetched. Why would such a group maintain a hit list in the first place? 
One of the theories that attempts to hand wave away much of the evidence to the case is that the Jamesons simply perished after getting lost in the wilderness. Whilst there have certainly been cases of people quickly getting lost in even small distances, this theory doesn't quite fit. If it was the case that they got out of the truck and went for a walk, firstly, you would be excused for asking why. More pressingly, why would they have left the dog and all of their phones, coats and importantly, the GPS unit in the car? Especially when walking out into a rather secluded patch of wilderness on a day that is known to have been cold. Pressingly, a GPS unit would surely be high on your list of priorities for things to take along. Despite this, it is not impossible and is certainly more plausible than some other theories. In the end, the case of the Jamesons leaves much room for speculation and in the vacuum of a cold case gives little chance for much else. The case lies discarded and the fate of the Jamesons is unlikely to be uncovered short of anyone coming forwards with new and concrete information. Throughout the life of the case, there were never any arrests made by police and nor were there any solid suspects. And so it stays, a case with more questions than answers a web of confusion and speculation. What did happen to the Jamesons at the foot of the mountains and who, if anyone, is guilty? We're pleased to announce that Dark Histories is now an official affiliate with Audible.com. As an affiliate, Audible has given us the chance to offer our listeners a 30-day free trial that includes an audiobook of your choice. You can sign up, grab a free audiobook, and if you don't think it's for you, just cancel before your 30 days is up and you've lost nothing. You've gained an audiobook and helped support the show. For one credit, you get one book per month and you can find pretty good value in there. Over 40 hours of the complete Sherlock Holmes read by Stephen Fry's one book, for example, which I would definitely recommend. And uh, they also do a fair bit of free programming. I'm currently on my dear old mum's recommendation, working my way through a 13-part true crime series called West Cork that's free to all Audible members. If you do decide to cancel your sub at any point, you keep all your books. They've also got desktop, Android and iOS apps that sync up, so that's an added bonus. If you do think that that sounds like it might tickle your fancy, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories, all one word, and sign up now for your 30-day free trial. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. Whoa, that's a pretty... It's another web, isn't it? It's another web of confusion, really, that case. The first thing I really feel like I, that I felt when I was researching it was... My God, that is so much drama for one family. In the end, it's not here or there. And I don't want to be too hard on them because, you know, they're dead. So let's move on from that, I suppose. Um, Next up is the sort of spiritual things. That was very strange, I felt. So you can describe away and, and hand wave away Sherilyn's uh, actions and saying that she could see spirits in the house because she obviously suffered from manic episodes and that's fairly easily explainable and Madison to a certain degree as well I, if she sensed you know this what her parents were talking about 
she could have easily got in on the story and you know children also you know children have imaginary friends that's not that unusual but you really have to question okay what about Bobby where he's a real outlier here like it's not so easily explainable he wasn't that mentally unstable he, he it was reported that he had some depression but I mean, there's depression and seeing angels or, or spirits with wings on your roof that, uh, and, and going to see your pastor to ask about spiritual bullets. That, you know, that's a that's a, a long way from just ordinary depression, I would have thought. So either Bobby had a lot more going on than he realised and was willing to admit to his doctor and was taking medication for, or, well, or what? Like, or there really were spirits in the house? Or, or, because I, I, I can understand to a certain degree, like perhaps Bobby sort of not humoring Sherilyn, but sort of going along with the story a little, um, depending on her moods. She was known to be angry and, and aggressive when she was manic sometimes. So I could imagine, you know, that at times maybe he kind of just went along with it. Um, to make life easier for both of them while she was having a manic episode. But he obviously believed it himself because he went to the pastor to ask about bullets and, and clearly seemed to believe it. So you've, that's a really weird one that I I couldn't really find much of an explanation for. Yeah, why did Bobby see the spirits? Or, or yeah, strange one, that. So... Let's jump onto their disappearance because the stuff before their disappearance is all very strange and it could definitely help give explanations for after their disappearance. But a lot of it's not here, here nor there. A lot of it's just to sort of set the scene to show that they were clearly a family struggling. So we move on to their disappearance. And first of all, we got the video of them packing. Now, on the internet, there is a lot of chatter about that being strange. A lot of people jump on the bandwagon and say they feel like their video is strange. Now, I don't think it's that strange. You can see the video. I will link to it in the show notes. Um, it's not the full video. It's clips that was in a documentary, but I'll link to it and you can see it. But I don't think it was that strange. I think, obviously, there's no sound because it's security footage. It's a little way away from them because it's a security footage. It takes in the whole yard, basically. Um, and they just walk backwards and forwards. It's true, Bobby comes out and puts things in the car and then Sherilyn takes them away and takes them back in. And yes, they don't talk to each other, but they're busy packing stuff in the morning with a dog and a child. Perhaps they just wanted to get things done. And the other thing is, obviously, it doesn't have sound. So you don't know that they may well have had an argument and they could well be just being sort of slightly passive-aggressive towards one another and just ignoring each other or getting things done. You can't tell the whole story just from that one video. A lot of people sort of tend to point to this video to pin on them and say, oh, look, they look like zombies. I think this is to do with their drugs. But And, and you know, they pin it onto the the idea that they were drug users. Um, but I often feel like drugs are, in these sort of cases, drugs are really often used as an easy demon 
to pin things on by people who often they, they don't have any experience with drugs or the drug users. So they sort of see this behavior and say, oh, drug users, they must be because they're drug users. And I think, well, I'm not sure that's how drug users act. You know, like drug users is drug use and drug users are on a huge spectrum. And I think it's very, very, basically, yeah, I think it's very, very easy for people who are not really familiar to just say, oh, drug users, and and just sort of hand wave things away like that. And I don't think that's true. I don't think this video is that weird. And I, I think in retrospect, it's very easy to feel like it's weird because you know what happened to them afterwards. But I do not think this video is that strange. I think it doesn't give us enough to know the whole situation. Say, who's to know that they didn't just have a massive argument and now they just wanted to pat the car and perhaps they were being a little passive-aggressive towards one another. You really, you really can't tell. So as far as the video is concerned, I feel like there's way too much onus put on this video as being strange when, in fact, it's not that strange. One thing that is strange, though, is the witch stuff. Um, and I think that's a lot more serious for Sherilyn than her friends made it out. You know, her friends said, oh, she didn't take it seriously. It was very tongue-in-cheek. I, I don't think that's true. I think she took it far more seriously than they make out there. I think she spray-painted all over things in their yard and she spray-painted on the storage container that they were planning to move to, which is a pretty big move. I think... I think it had a lot more to do with her manic episodes. If you look at the spelling for starters of when she said about three cats killed by people around here, she spelt things very wrong. She spelt by B-U-Y instead of B-Y and she spelt their cats T-H-E-R-E. I think these are basic spelling errors and I don't think she was that poor at spelling. I think that probably was done while she was having a manic episode or you know I don't, I don't think she was perhaps all there mentally when she did that and I think the witch stuff yeah I think it was I don't think it's anything to do with her disappearance but I do think it played a bigger role and it shows her mental state at the time in a much more clear light than her friends are willing to admit they like to say say oh it was all tongue-in-cheek we just bought the books for fun uh, yeah, I think that's possibly true, but I think Sherilyn took it a little more seriously than they realised, perhaps. Yeah, that that's that's something which I think was quite strange. And another thing which I thought was quite strange about the whole thing in general is Bobby had bad back trouble and several occasions his family said, you know, they don't think he would have got out the van voluntarily, <clears throat> because he had trouble with walking around. He had trouble sometimes just at home with just walking around the house uh, because it caused him so much pain. And they got the handyman, Kenneth, in to help with their troubles at home. Now, if that was all true, it really poses a question, what on earth were they doing moving to a remote mountain property anyway? Because you would assume that, or one would think that that would require quite a lot of maintenance and obviously quite a lot of walking around in a rural area that 
again, if he struggles at home, he's going to struggle on a mountainside. But then his back issue is an interesting one because they did go for a walk. They went for a 15-minute walk up a hill and the GPS and the photo confirms that. So his back, it seems to sort of swing left and right quite quite a lot. It goes from one minute he, him being essentially crippled by it to the next minute he's, you know, strolling up a hillside. I'm not sure what was going on there. Perhaps it comes and goes, who knows, but it does seem like a strange move for someone with such problems to decide to move to a remote mountain property in the first place. I think there's an awful lot of strange decisions that this family made prior to the disappearance. An awful lot of strange decisions. And I think that adds to the cold case just being more and more confusing. So I just mentioned the photo on the hill there. And uh, that's another thing on the internet which tends to get talked up a lot as being strange and tends to get people say, you know, she looks like she's crying. She looks like she's uncomfortable. She looks like this. She looks like that. I think that's a lot of projection. I think that's a, again, I think it's a lot of people knowing what happened and then placing that onto the photo. I think for me, it looks like a bad photo of a kid that's possibly in the middle of talking or, you know, just caught at a bad point. Now, I've had some pretty awful photos of me taken and it doesn't mean I was upset and it didn't mean I was feeling threatened. It just meant I was turning my head at the wrong time or, you know, I was in the middle of speaking and, you know, it's caught me looking at a a strange facial position. Um, And I think that's more to do with it. If I look at that child, I don't think it's that strange. And if you try and divorce yourself from what you know about it and look at it as just a child, a photo of a six-year-old child, I think it's actually fairly normal. Again, I think this, along with the video, is a case of because we know what happened to the family in the end, we know the fate of the family, we tend to sort of look back in in hindsight and, and sort of project that onto elements that are actually quite innocent. And I think this is definitely a case of that. I don't think the photo is that strange. And I, I'll, uh, I will make the photo available. You can find it online, um, but I'll link to it in the show notes, um, put it up on the Instagram and stuff so you can see and make your own mind up. But I don't think it's that strange. Just feel free to disagree. Feel free to get in touch with me and tell me why I'm terribly wrong. But that's, that's my thoughts when I first saw it. The things that I find that are much stranger about this case, say the photo and the video, people pay a lot of attention to that. But the things that I find much stranger that tend to be overlooked a little or, or people don't focus so much on is the voicemail, the phone that called the voicemail on the 12th. Now that, is, to me, is far stranger. How did that phone do that? About the only possible way is that the dog might have called it by accident by stepping on the phone. But that would, and this is dangerous because it leads to a lot of guesswork and sort of assumptions. But the, for a dog to ring voicemail, I don't think it's that simple. I mean, it was the, did the phone have a lock code for a start? 
and it was a BlackBerry phone. So, it, you know, it had buttons, it had physical buttons. The dog could potentially have called it, called a voicemail, but that's still strange. And I, and I think it would have been pretty lucky to have called it. Not only that, but what would have made the dog walk around so much when it was, you would assume, trying to conserve energy by that point, what would have excited the dog so much that it would have stamped its feet around enough to have caught the phone and, and dialed the voicemail? That, that, things like that, for me, are, are much bigger questions that are much stranger than the video and the photo. Simple things like, you know, why did they leave all their stuff behind? Why did they leave the dog behind? If they got out of the car or the truck voluntarily, why did they leave their coats behind? As far as the police were concerned, it, they said they, you know, no no blood, no scuffles on the ground, no broken glass. It looks like they left the truck on their own volition. If that's true, why did they leave everything behind? That's a very strange question. The day was known to be cold. The weather was a said that the uh, sorry the sheriff said that it was a cold day that day when you look at the weather records. So why did they leave their coats behind? That seems like a strange thing to do. And what was the $32,000 doing? It was stuffed under the seat, but was that under there to purchase the land? Were they planning to use that to purchase the land? Why wasn't it in a bank? You'd have to ask. Although I think that can be actually relatively easily answered by suggesting that perhaps they just didn't want all their savings in the bank. So perhaps they were just keeping it cash. It seems like a strange thing to do, but... They were fairly paranoid by this point, so perhaps they were just not wanting to keep that in the bank. A lot of people pin the money on to drug deals, and I don't think that's the case. I think it's fairly easily answerable that it was the money that they got from the court case with uh, Bobby Jitt Senior. Uh, it's, it's the fact that it's half of sixty-four thousand, which was the payout to two people that needed to be split, seems pretty self-explanatory to to me at least I don't think it has anything to do with a drug deal I think it's I think that's exactly what it was I think it was the payout from the court but why they had it in cash that's anyone's guess I think the only thing I can possibly think of is they were going to use it to buy the land or at least put a deposit down on the land uh, so you know I think that's fairly easy, answer, easily answerable but then why did they leave it in the car the real big confusing ones I think uh, the the voicemail, how, how did that get called that we've addressed? Why did they leave all their stuff behind? That to me is very strange. The briefcase or satchel that went missing from the truck, that's very strange. Where is it? What, we'll come to sort of some theories in a second, but it seems strange that it's missing, as well as the gun. Where is that? Where is that if it went missing? And that sort of leads us onto the first sort of theory of murder-suicide and I think this is possibly the most likely outcome for me and despite what the family said about them being in love and all the rest of it I think that's possibly true I think I, I think yeah fair enough they perhaps were but I also think they were very unwell I think both of the parents were pretty unwell and I think they both had a motive for it, basically. I think they both had at least somewhat of a motive for it. 
And uh, it, it, it also would answer what the letter was doing in the car. Uh, you know, obviously that letter was playing a big role in their life. It could even answer why in the video they were perhaps not talking to each other. When did they dis- if say Bobby discovered this letter, um, and he, I mean, obviously now we're getting into a lot of guesswork here. So this is just sort of riffing. But let's just say Bobby discovers the letter. They have a big argument, but they've already planned to drive up by the land. They sort of take the letter along because they want to talk about it later. Whilst they're packing the car, they're being very passive aggressive to one another because they've just had a huge argument that's more or less on hold until they've kind of done this land thing. So, you know, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness there. Was that enough then for him to sort of murder suicide? I'm not sure. His mental state was not great. And Sherilyn's mental state was equally not great. So the letter, whether it was a suicide note or a reason for one or the other, who knows? But I do think this is the most plausible situation and I also think it does answer where the gun and the bag goes as well to a certain degree now it took four years for them to discover the bodies and when they did they were not particularly good condition the amount of bones they found was not mentioned and we I know from other cases Bella in the witch elm for starters that where she was missing a hand now it was fairly easily explained away by the forensics at the time that said that the hand was probably dragged away by an animal. Now, it's not that hard to imagine that animals could have dragged away bones from the scene and the bones could have either snagged the gun or, if even as grim as it is, be holding the gun. And that their gun could be up there. It, it could just be 50, 100 yards away from the bodies down a rabbit hole or something. Not Not necessarily a rabbit hole, but... You know, you get my point. The gun didn't necessarily need to be at the at the murder scene anymore or the murder-suicide scene anymore. It could have easily have gone walkabout through animals. And who knows, if they'd have dragged, if animals dragged it away, say, 100 yards away from the body, it's, I think it's more likely that it's still up there somewhere. It could be buried. It could be anything by now. But... There's also the possibility that it was dragged away and someone found the gun but found no bodies because actually it was quite a long way from the bodies by that point because it had been dragged by animals. This all is a lot of guesswork, but I don't think it's that poor of a theory when you consider what other theories are bandied around. And I think you can also say the same for the bag. I think the bag could have equally have done a similar walkabout with the amount of animals that would have been up there and the amount of time that passed and the fact that their bodies were in such a poor state when they were found that it took almost a year to ID them. I think that goes to show that they had been desecrated by animals quite quite badly. We'll leave it at that because I don't want to get too graphic. But yeah, I think I think that's... And I think animals could certainly have had a lot to do with the gun and the bag not being there anymore. As far as the drug theory, I think that's absolute nonsense. I think it's, I mean, obviously this is just my opinions. I'd love to hear your opinions. And if you want to get in touch, please do so. You can do so at contact at Dark Histories email. Uh, but yeah, please get in touch and tell me if you think I'm wrong. But I think the drugs is is absolute nonsense. And I think, I think, like I said before, I think it's often 
a demon that you can pin things on when you don't know what drugs are. A casual drug user is unlikely to go and do a murder-suicide. Simple as that. And it and, and a casual drug user, which they would have been if they were anything, because like their mum said, and I agree, they were good parents and they wouldn't have been able to do that as heavy drug users. Now, so if that, that, that really only leaves you with the fact that if they were drug users at all, which I don't think they were, then they would have been fairly casual drug users and fairly casual drug users. If they have these problems, they're side problems. They're nothing to do with the drugs. So I think overall the drugs thing is nonsense. I think the drug deal thing is nonsense. I don't think you go from, you know, it's all a bit breaking bad, isn't it? Like like the regular guy can suddenly just pull off a one-time drug deal. No, no, that's just not that easy. It's not that simple to make the connections you would need to make to offload enough drugs to make a one-time deal worth it. Sure, I think anyone could pick up some drugs and sell them for 10 quid down the street to the guy who wants some weed or whatever. Sure, anyone can do that. But I don't think anyone can pick up enough meth or whatever it was to do a huge drug deal that's going to secure you financially for a little while or at least get you out of financial problems. I don't think that's possible. You need bigger, you need more connections than he would have had and he would have been capable of having. I think that would take an awful lot more planning than, than what they would have been willing to get into. And I also just don't think it's that easy. Um, so I think the drugs theory is, is more or less nonsense. So the other theory I think that we're left with really is, well, we're left with two sort of big theories. Um, murder. I think maybe, I think it's possible, but if it was, I think it would have had to been random. I don't think it was to do with the drugs. Like I say, I, I don't think it was the dad. I don't think it was the cult. I don't think it was Kenneth. Obviously the dad and Kenneth had alibis. Um, the cult aspect of it seems like an interesting out there aside to me I think it would have been round it could have been by a cult member but I don't think it would have been the white knights the union of white knights or whatever they were called with a hit list I think that's absolutely bizarre why would a cult even maintain a hit list to me that seems bonkers I think if it was a murder it would have been totally random and I think that's possible but I think it's fairly unlikely so really we're left with like the natural which is, I think is you know, plausible enough. You can get lost in the wilderness, but yes, you can say it's easy for them to get lost, but where did everything else go? The gun, the bag, why did they leave their coats and their GPS? Surely you would think the GPS would be the number one thing to take if they were going for a walk, and the only way they could have really died of natural causes is if they had gone for a walk, and I think you would definitely have taken your at least the GPS unit, probably your phone. And you would have thought your coats if it was that cold. So it's an interesting one. I think it's plausible, but I don't think it's likely. I think for me, in order of plausibility, it goes murder-suicide first, then natural causes, then murder, and then drugs, and then the rest, basically. Uh, I think... I think murder-suicide is, is the most likely. Who murdered who and then suicided, I am less keen to 
make my guess on that one. I think, say, both parents, Bobby and Sherilyn, both had not necessarily a motive that you or me might think is a strong motive, but for people in a fragile mental state, perhaps it was a much more plausible motive. So, yeah, I think they both had an element of a motive there. Still leaves a lot of questions, like the bullet hole in the head. The sheriff said it was possibly an animal. I'm not sure that's true. But then I'm not sure what a bullet hole in a skull would look like. And regardless, we don't have the pictures from the autopsies or anything. So, you know, we can't, we don't have the pictures of the remains, of the bones or anything. So I'm not one to judge. But I think, you know, the fact that the hunter himself said that he disagrees, I would have thought someone who hunts probably knows what a bullet hole looks like in bone. And I'm willing to sort of buy that. But that's that's very possible. You know, these are sort of minor asides, really. I think, yeah, in terms of plausibility, I think murder-suicide is, is the most likely outcome, unfortunately, which is, which is a shame and it's a very sad outcome to a family who perhaps got the help they needed because it's clear that they didn't get the help they needed all the time. I think they're on an awful lot of prescription medication, which, again, is a shame and it's a little bit of a reflection of our times to a degree is, oh, you've got mental health issues, we'll stick you on some medication. It's not always helpful. You know, perhaps if these people had got some more robust help, they, then all of this could have been avoided if you're going with the murder-suicide thing. Of course, against the murder-suicide, now I've said all that, is everyone seems to suggest that their moving to the mountainside was their way of turning a leaf on the past. So even that, really, you know, we're left unsure. Complicated one, difficult one, still a big web. So I guess I'll just do a, a quick run through of our social media stuff because, you know, I'm sure you figured out it's not my favourite thing to do. We're on Twitter at Dark Histories. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Dark Histories Podcast. You can contact us for either of those or if you go to our website, darkhistories.com, you'll find a contact page there that's direct to our email, which is contact at darkhistories.com. And also it's worth popping on the website for the show notes, look around. There's a bit of stuff going on on the website. It might be worth checking out. There's also a support page. Um, I'm not going to bang on too much about this, but we have a Patreon. You can sign up, help support the show, keep it keep it running for a few dollars you get early access and some other small perks. You get access to my notes. You get access to bonus episodes, which are, have been recording um, and will be releasing from next week, I think. It's going to be the first bonus episode. That will be Patreon exclusive. Uh, so jump on, help support the show because God knows we need it. <laughs> um, and if you like the show, feel free to drop us a review. The last couple of weeks has actually seen us do quite well with ratings and reviews. So thanks very much for that. I will say though, English people, UK people, my fellow brethren, step it up because the US is absolutely stomping the UK iTunes store for reviews. So, you know, if you're from the UK, step it up. See what I did there, psychology. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we're going to call that the end of the episode. So... I hope you enjoyed it. Sleep tight.